te whenua, ko te whenua ko au. I am the land, and the land is me. E nga iwi o te motu, nau mai haere mai ki te wāhanga o te ahikā, ko Maraia Rakuraku tēnei. Ko Justin Murray tēnei, welcome to Te Ahikā, Radio New Zealand's Māori Features Programme. Kia ora tātou katoa. It rolls around once a year and has always created much debate and discussion to its citizens. Of course we're talking about the Tiriti or Waitangi or the Treaty of Waitangi and its place within Aotearoa, New Zealand. And while the actual celebration was a few days ago on the 6th of February, the long weekend has been used by a number of iwi and organisations throughout the motu to celebrate or commemorate Waitangi Day. Whether it was flying a flag or wearing a t-shirt, one organisation that approached it in a way that celebrates and commemorates, did so by getting up at the crack of dawn and trekking up a mountain in Tauranga, Mowal. Paul Stanley, manager of Te Runanga o Ngaiterangi, the organisation representing Ngaiterangi iwi in Tauranga, explains why. Well, normally for a lot of our people, it starts at about 5.30am with a gentle stroll up the side of the mountain and to the top and uh, uh, many people celebrate the breaking of the new day um, from the top of Moa. On completion of that, see Karakia, um, some Waiata, and then uh, people come back down to Fadiro Marae for breakfast. Well, let's just say if that was me, I'm not too sure I'll be motivated to trek up the mount. The Treaty of Waitangi is about the partnership between the English Crown, named in the 1840 document as Queen Victoria, and Ngarangatira or New Tirini, Chiefs of New Zealand. In 1963, her great-grandchild Elizabeth II visited Waitangi, where she reiterated those feelings. It was here, on this hallowed ground, that pledges were given on behalf of Queen Victoria no doubt there are to many the Māori chiefs when they ceded sovereignty to the Crown. Today, for Iwi of Tauranga Moana, it means setting the alarm at 4am to trek up Mowal in Mount Manunui. And, as and to assure my Māori people mountain, it was back that down the obligations entered into at Waitangi Paul Stanley go far deeper than any legal provision in any form of document. Also, Māori Pacific historian and anthropologist Manuka Hinare had to speak into contemporary times the history of Māori economic activity and the influence of Christianity in the 1830s prior to the signing of the Waitangi weekend in the past, Tauranga Moana has been pretty you know, proactive in celebrating and commemorating Waitangi Day. So, like in previous years, what what happens? Well, normally for a lot of our people, it starts at about 5.30am with a gentle stroll up the side of the mountain. And to the top, and uh, uh, many people celebrate the breaking of the new day um, from the top of Moa. On completion of that, see Karakia, um, some Waiata, and then uh, people come back down to Fadiro Marae for breakfast. Um, on completion of the breakfast, particularly this year, uh, uh, we're setting up for a local community concert with a whole range of different groups and, and bands and performers, all local local groups around here coming together to celebrate Waitangi Day. And so whose idea was it to trek up Mowal? <laughs> oh, I think it was the majority of the co-martyrs, actually. The, um, is, it, is it motivated to get uh, to get people to, to wake up that early on Waitangi Day, the day off, and trek up, trek up Mowal? A lot of our people um, around here like to go up, our maunga, um whether it be for fitness or whether it be to celebrate the current, the dawning of the new year, the new month, uh, Matariki, 
Uh, there are many special occasions where people climb up to the top of the mountain. Um, we're just pleased that people do. It's, it's what they believe in. It's what our people believe in. It uh, keeps people fit. It keeps them into the Ed Hillary mode. It's got to be good. <laughs> but um, for, for some of the nannies in the Krowa, they get a write-up, don't they? Yes. We would... uh, some of the nannies and stuff, uh, they get taken up by four-wheel drive, of course. Uh, younger ones who are like under 55 all have to walk. Good job. And so tell us about the uh, the overall celebrations this year, uh, Paul, with the concert, as you said before. Um, you know, how long have you been organising it? This is the fourth year for the Waitangi Day concert. We, uh, the first couple of years, the concerts were on the um, on the main beach, which was really good. Um, last year and this year, they're held at Whareiro Marae Reserve. This, uh, for the past couple of years, we've been um, down on the main beach, which has been really cool. Um, and uh, this last two years, um, including this year, um, we're going to be at Fadido Marae Reserve um, down the mountain. Um, another very good site. It's actually quite a special site for us here uh, because it is a marae. And it's part of how we're going to be celebrating Waitangi Day. We've got a host of talent here, actually, in, in Tauranga Moana. Um, local dance groups uh, in terms of um, um, uh, Blackout Crew, the Mellow Drops, Nightmare, Regan Perry as an individual. Um, but all the groups here, uh, local ones, and, and the genre of, of music that they have are going anything from um, uh, rock and roll, hard rock, um, to rhythm and blues and jazz and all the rest of it. But there's quite a wide genre of, of music, including uh, a kapahapa group as well. You know how you were talking about the beach celebration? Mm. We, do you think you'll ever go back to the beach and, and host something like this? Or is, is it a logistical nightmare? Oh, the, the sort of compliance issues in and around um, having a concert on Mount Beach are like a pretty big because uh, for for one reason or another, uh, all I know is on, the, on our end of it, uh, as a person who's, um, you know, like at the organising end of it, Organising and going through compliance issues in the mm. council and stuff is a logistically tough. Yeah. Um, whereas when you're dealing with your own site, uh, it's a lot easier. It's just about you know talking to, hey auntie, can we can we have the concert there? No, no. I'm just yeah, and that's pretty much how it came to you know like um, it's it's much easier. You control the things you can control. Really, is what the theory goes in it. Mm. Hey, what does Waitangi Day mean to you, Paul? That's a really good question, Justine. I mean, I think I think uh, like for many people in this country, the, our perception and um, of Waitangi Day is quite dynamic and quite it changes a lot. You know, it's been changing. Um, you know, there was once upon a time. We I, I remember many many years ago when I was in the Navy and uh, we tried to fly a um, a skull and crossbones in celebration of Waitangi Day because of the, our perception of oppression. Of course, we got into trouble, a heck of a lot of trouble on that. But, um, you know, in, in, in the past, for many Māori people, Waitangi has been seen as a day of sadness. And I remember Bishop Verko's speech at Waitangi on that issue itself. I think nowadays we've moved on from that. You know, who who, who would have believed that many years later, uh, the Māori Party in a positions of power, real power, within central government, and, and in the same, same year, in 2009, um, who would have believed that a black man got elected as the president of the US. So we're changing. 
I think for many people around the country, it's more of a terms of celebration than it has been for other issues. And lucky for some, the local iwi station, Moana AM, broadcasted the event live, so people who couldn't be bothered getting up listened over the airwaves. Waitangi also falls on Allegiant's birthday. Now, here's a few clues. Get up, stand up. Waiting in vain. Buffalo soldier. I shot the sheriff. And one love. The title given to the Roots Rock and Reggae concert held on Waitangi Day in Wellington to coincide with Bob Marley's birthday. New Way and reggae musician Tingi Lao Ness spoke with me about the origins of the concert. Kia ora, Tini. Kia ora, Justine. Kia ora. Now, you're, you're with the group Unity Pacific. Yes. And there is obviously a history with you and the One Love concert. Yes. Um, Let's have a corridor about uh, your you starting or you know sort of building that foundation that is now known as One Love. Yes, there was a Bob Marley exhibition going around the world in 1993, and um, I uh, was had done some work at the Auckland Museum, Auckland War Memorial Museum, and uh, that's where the Bob Marley exhibition was. Uh, held, and uh, I rung up uh, one of the people there that I'd known previously, and um, asked him if we, me and my band called Unity at that time, could um, go up and play at the band rotunda uh, in the museum there. And he said sure. So February six, I um, took my band up and we plugged in and we played um, for the people there. It was free. It was a lovely day, 1993, and about 5,000 people turned up. Um, just passers-by and things like that because we didn't advertise or anything. We just wanted to celebrate the day, you know, it being Waitangi Day and also Bob Marley's birthday. And around about that time in 1993, there was a lot of trouble going on um, up at Waitangi, you know, with the protesting. Um and I'd been involved in all a lot of those um, beforehand too, and uh, I just got sick of the the you know, the aggro that was going on, and it looked like it was getting going to get worse um, with with people's um, reactions to the protests and the the news coverage uh, coming from 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 up there. Yeah, so so I I knew that Bob's birthday was Feb six, and so was Waitangi Day. It was just opportune that the Bob Marley exhibition um, hit Auckland, and um, you know it happened on on around February sixth. So I, I pounced on the idea and rang up my friend uh, who worked at the uh, Auckland Museum and um, put it to him. You know, me and my band want to come up there and play on February sixth, um, and I knew that some people would misconstrue it, saying, "Oh, Tingy's gone soft now and all this kind of thing," but um, you know, with Bob's legacy of peace and love and unity, well, we I, I wanted to carry that on and show there's another way of doing it, you know, a peaceable way where people will listen, and that's in, that's um, with music. So um, the, that first time there in 1993, Feb 6, me and my band went up there and plugged in at the band Rotunda, and um, about 5,000 people turned up. 
And the next year, 1994, we did the same thing. This time about 20,000 people turned up, and it just grew from there. And um, the, the crowds just grew, and they had to move it to Point England, uh, out Glen Ennis here in Auckland, um, which is a predominantly um, Polynesian area still. Um, Māori, uh, 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 and um, that's where um, Hobson uh, landed you know, to, to, to do the um, Waitangi uh, uh, signing back then, um, you know, back in 1840 and stuff. And um, it was opportune, and uh, the people that organised it, it just got totally out of hand because they were overwhelmed by the number of people, uh, even Auckland City Council and the police, um, you know, it just got out of hand. So the year after that, which would be, be about 97, um they had it in an enclosed area uh, downtown in Auckland here at um, the Rugby League Park, uh, which was good. And about then I, I, I sort of pulled back from it because it was getting so huge. Um, you know, all the bands were vying for for positions and stuff like that. So everybody wanted to kind of like jump on the One Love bandwagon at the time. Yep. But which for I, a good cause, which isn't I it? felt was good because yeah. it, it took away a lot of the the friction from um, the normal Waitangi Day celebration um, protests. Yeah, so it worked, you know. And and therefore, to me, Bob had an influence on, you know, where the, where the country is today. Back in 1993, the Waitangi protests, mm. not only in Waitangi but around Aotearoa, yes. did that grow some, did you grow somewhat tiresome of that? portrayal of Waitangi Day that you sort of viewed one love as man let's get together and celebrate Bob's life and his birthday and Waitangi Day to make it more harmonious um, yep all of that and and also the fact that um, previous to, to that you know for the Springbok tour in 1981 I got imprisoned for it so I knew this, that I was to continue to go up and protest and that that's what I would be looking at you know because my involvement in, in the protests and that is this, that if I'm going to sing um, songs like what Bob um, had written, and we were doing a lot of his covers at that time, like Get Up, Stand Up. And so, Tinny, tell us about, well, you come from a very strong musical background, uh, the 12 Tribes of Israel set up back in the 70s. Tell us about the music of Unity Pacific, obviously a real kind of reggae flavour happening, isn't it? Yes. Totally um, influenced by Bob Marley first, um, and then you know the other ones followed on. Um, I first heard Bob about 1975. Uh, yep, about 1975 when a couple of friends came back from from Los Angeles and they'd just uh, uh, been involved. Well, they they were witness to the riots that were happening there, and they fled from from Los Angeles back to New Zealand. And they came with a um, an album called Natty Dread. How do you feel having come from 15 years ago, you decided to do this thing, 5,000 people turned up to the original One Love uh, concert even though, was it was it called One Love back then? We called it Bob Day, Bob Waitangi Day. Day. Bob Day, Waitangi Day. Yeah. Um, the following year, <laughs> um, Normal uh, got onto it and advertised it as the One Love concert. Oh, okay. And then fast forward 15 years, performing in Wellington. Yes. Yeah, I've always wanted to go and do the One Love down Wellington because I've heard, you know, so much about it and, and being involved in it back then, of course. And I'm really happy that 
um, one city in, in, in Aotearoa has picked it up and run with it, and it must be that that um, you know it works because mm-hmm. Waitangi Day Feb six is, is a crucial, important day for us all here, um, and for it to be celebrated in such a fashion in peace and love and unity, which is the whole concept of the thing, the one love, um, couldn't be a better person to to for people to relate to. Kia ora tingilau. Wellington-based station Radioactive plays a major part in organising the DJs and the bands. Dave Gibbons has done so for the past 13 years. Uh, with me now I have uh, David Gibbons, who is the station manager of Radioactive, and you've got a big p- part to play for the One Love concert. Yes, um, sort of a uh, part organiser with um, a guy called Haddon, who are uh, helping me put the event together called One Love, which we uh, do every year for Waitangi Day. Now, David, you've been involved with the One Love concert uh, for a number of years. Yes, from its inception, pretty much. I mean. So, in your opinion, how has it changed over over that length of time? Um, probably um, the numbers. I mean, the first one, which is in Civic Square, and it's now expanded to what is not short of sort of fifteen thousand people. So, over the twelve years, it's the twelfth year now, and um, yeah, it definitely has grown in numbers. So, I suppose probably the biggest thing. And the, probably the other thing is the fact that it's kind of been very strong on New Zealand music as well, which has kind of helped people, I think, associate with that with the event itself as well. And I think that's helped hugely and it's helped grow in some of the biggest bands that have um, come out of New Zealand so far as well, like the likes of Fat Freddy's and obviously the Black Seeds, the Trinity Roots, um, Cora, and a whole host of bands that have uh, come through over the years. And, of course, it's held on Bob Marley's birthday and yeah. Waitangi Day. So how significant do you think One Love is to the the patrons, the, the, the people that go to the concert? I think it's their national day. They recognise that. I think they want to celebrate in unity. They recognise what's happened in the past, but it's about the future. And that's why we get such a cross, I suppose, a mixture of people there that turn up. You know, there's uh, music's a great kind of, um, a great kind of conduit, I suppose, of, bringing people together and unifying people and the kind of music we play. And obviously, significantly, is Bob Marley's birthday going to help hugely and people recognise that. And I think that's probably why it has or is so successful. I'm Justine Murray. And I'm Mariah Rakuraku. And this is Te Ahika, the programme giving you a perspective on Te Ao Māori. And to download our podcast or previous programs, you can go to radionz.co.nz forward slash Te Ahika. And you can always email us at Te Ahika at radionz.co.nz. Queen's representative at the signing of the Treaty of Waitangi in 1840 was Governor William Hobson and nearly 125 years later, in 1963, at commemorative celebrations in Waitangi, her mokopuna, or grandchild, or in this case, great-great-grandchild Elizabeth II, was there. As the Haka warriors move to one side, revealing the Porphyry Party, Her Majesty enters this great marae to receive... The Porphyry of Welcome.
reverence, we offer a prayer of thanksgiving to God, creator of all things, who has brought you, our queen, and your husband safely to our midst this day. Her Majesty the Queen. Mr. Prime Minister, Satori Carol, European and Māori people of New Zealand, Tena Koto Katoa. delighted that on this, our second visit to New Zealand, we should land here on the 123rd anniversary of the signing of the Treaty of Waitangi, which also happily coincides with the 11th anniversary of my accession as Queen of New Zealand. feel that this happy circumstance serves to bind us all together more firmly in the spirit in which this nation was founded on that great day in 1840. Your kind generous welcome to me today confirms this and it has been a deeply moving experience. More especially because the Māori people expressed a wish to offer me a gift to commemorate this day and this visit. I have agreed that this gift is to take the form of a postgraduate fellowship open in turn to Māori and European, because because no present could give me greater delight than one which contributes directly to the interests of my people in New Zealand. I willingly consent that this fellowship should stand in my name. practical terms, this fellowship should encourage young New Zealanders to go in for academic inquiry and research, but it would also have a deeper meaning. 
It will stand as a symbol of the equality of rights and opportunity upon which life in New Zealand is founded. It was here, on this hallowed ground, that pledges were given on behalf of Queen Victoria to the Maori chiefs when they ceded sovereignty to the Crown. Today, before you all, I want to renew those pledges and to assure my Māori people that the obligations entered into at Waitangi go far deeper than any legal provision in any formal document. Whatever may have happened in the past and whatever the future may bring, it remains the sacred duty of the Crown today, as in 1840, to stand by the spirit of the Treaty of Waitangi and to ensure that the trust of the Māori people is never betrayed. do my part, but remember that these pledges are given on behalf of the self-governing people of New Zealand and her democratically elected government. Therefore, each one of you bears some responsibility to maintain the provisions and foster the spirit of the treaty. can hope to be united and prosperous unless all its people understand and accept their duties and responsibilities as citizens. This does not mean that there is any need for a rigid conformity in matters of culture and custom. That is why I have been delighted by the gaiety of the Māori participants in today's ceremonies. I am happy to see that you, my Māori people continue to find pleasure and recreation from your own traditions. European and Māori can go forward together in confident partnership to make New Zealand a modern and prosperous nation at the same time showing understanding and tolerance of each other's distinctive culture and customs. I hope that the ceremonies we have witnessed today, naval and Māori, representing the main participants on the first Waitangi Day 123 years ago, will be an inspiration to the whole nation in the years ahead and symbolic of the close relations between the two races. After the treaty had been signed and witnessed on that historic February day, 
Captain Hobson spoke these challenging and prophetic words. He iwi kotahi tato. We are all one people. And on this happy anniversary, let me add simply, Aroha Nui, Kia Oro Koto. Dr. Monica Hinari is the Associate Dean of Māori and Pacific Development at the University of Auckland Business School. Hailing from Whangapē in the Hokianga, he has combined academic life with his Catholic beliefs and Māoritanga. Now, some may say, given New Zealand's colonial past, this is a contradiction in terms. And that's what I asked him. Starting with the work he did 17 years ago with the Catholic Agency for Justice, Peace and Development, Caritas. Caritas Aotearoa is the... um New Zealand wing, as it were, of an international um, development and relief agency established by the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, it has its headquarters in the Vatican in Rome in Italy, and um, uh, it's been going since the Second World War. It's one of the largest aid and development programs in the world. Um, and. Um, uh, some 17 odd years ago, I think it was, we changed the name from the Catholic Overseas Aid Committee, uh, and uh, that was its original name. Then it was called the Catholic Commission for uh, Evangelization, Justice, and Peace. Um, and then uh, there was another name, and then finally we, we decided to take the international name. Uh, and put all all the justice and peace work under the one umbrella of Caritas Aotearoa New Zealand. And at its heart, you have Catholic social teaching. What's that? Well, we have um, the Catholic Church um, has a stream of theology called social doctrine, and this is the doctrine of the, of, of Christian theology that addresses questions to do with. Um, um, the way society works, its economies, its political systems, and its social systems. Um, and uh, that's what was often called social doctrine. Uh, and um, uh, so the theology of development, theologies of justice and peace, all these kind of specific um, theologies emerge under that umbrella, um, drawing heavily on biblical on scripture, Christian um, uh, scripture, and uh, and also the theology that's developed through centuries of um, uh, act, act, actions, activities in, in the world of economics and politics. So, with the centuries-old teaching, and with that with that in mind, how is that set alongside with with colonisation? I mean, often religion was used as a means of assisting the imperial process. Yes, and and that's been um, that's been well argued by diverse range of scholars, both in politics, economics, theology, missiology, all sorts of different um, um, 
um, disciplines have uh, considered that, and there is some truth to it. Uh, it's not as black and white as that, though. Mm. Um, and um, uh, in fact, the um, Christianity came to New Zealand, um, riding in on British colonial interests in, in the Pacific, uh, as well as the French colonial interests in the Pacific. The Russians had a fleet in the Pacific. Uh, the United States was developing interest in the Pacific um, in the time of the 18th, 19th, and uh, 20th centuries. So all these things, uh, the world is basically um, rediscovering the Pacific in, 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 in a big way in the 19th century. Don't forget the Spanish and the Portuguese that come into the Pacific uh, as, uh, in, as early as the uh, 15th, 16th, mainly around the 16th century, say, say and, the, and mainly in the north, it's Magellan and others. Um, so um, so that, that was the uh, turmoil of political interests, and you have a small tribal society called Māori of Aotearoa um, caught up in this uh, whirlpool of conflicting economic and political interests. Now, in the midst of all that... Uh, missionaries are often um, traveling on uh, navy ships of the French, the British, and, uh, and the Russians, and everybody else, uh, as well as uh, traveling on the trading ships. And uh, that was the, uh, the way most of the missionaries came into the Pacific. So, so you can see why critics would say, well, look, they, they came in on the coattails of, of colonial um, ambitions, and, and there's some truth to it. Now, Having said that, one has to consider what then was the response of the receiving culture, in this case, Māori. Well, that's very interesting because um, uh, it's got to be remembered that many Tamarangatira, particularly in North Auckland, they sent their young people away to Australia to learn what the missionaries were up to. And... Um, People often forget that uh, Hongi Hika had sent some of his um, nephews, uh, Rangatira in their own right, to Sydney to make contact with Samuel Marsden and others. And in the end, Hongi and Ruatara went over to Australia and they brought Marsden here. So there is, from a Māori historical point of view, that interesting piece of history in which um, Māori went looking for Christianity and finding out what it is that they have to offer. Now, that does suggest that maybe um, many indigenous communities, including Māori, uh, were quite capable of making up their own mind about the worth or otherwise of this new religion. And um, that, that, that would be my, my, my view. Okay, so your whakapapa is based up north, and... I guess it would be fair to say that the Catholic faith is is a stronghold up north. Would that be fair to say? It's very strong, but uh, but um, it, we were the the third Christian group uh, uh, to come in. Uh, the Anglicans, the Methodists, uh, were the first into the north, um, based around um, um, Kaio and uh, Whangaroa Harbour, and also in the Hokianga and uh, in the Bay of Islands. Um, and it wasn't until 1838, um, 30, really, around about that period, 39, that the 
the, the formal side of the Catholic Church arrived in the form of Bishop Jean-Baptiste Pompelier. There had been many Catholic um, sailors, traders, and navymen who had come in, uh, and so uh, and there were Catholic um, lay people already living in the Hokianga. So, um, so what is interesting is that um, when Pompelier arrived, uh, there was, uh, for all intents and purposes, a small Catholic community already existing, um, primarily around the Hokianga. And um, uh, at Rangi Point, and, uh, and and so on. So, so and again, what we find there is that uh, Maori were were really, in a way, the drivers of the introduction of of Catholicism. Um, so we have that very interesting um, um, paradox. On the one hand, Christianity comes in on the back of a colonial adventure. And on the, and the paradoxes that, that, despite all that, um, we find Maori, both uh, the original Maori, Anglican, Methodist, and Catholic communities, uh, fully engaged and actually encouraging um, missionaries to be here, and at the same time, going out to Australia, to other parts of the Pacific, to find out what it is that Christianity had to offer, and what did these churches have to offer. I think there's a very interesting paradox there, and uh, the, uh, it was mainly the Anglicans and the Methodists who, together with James Busby, were engaged with um, uh, in the in the uh, the writing of the letter of the Rangatira in 1831 to King um, to King William IV, um, the secretary, the one who did all the writing. But there was a um, Anglican, uh, Yates. Uh, and then in um, what was that letter about, Monica? Oh, that was a letter that they wrote to King William, saying that uh, the northern uh, tribes would like to have a relationship with with him and his people uh, for trading purposes. The letter discusses some of the products that Maori have to offer, but make the point that England has far more to offer Maori in terms of products. And um, and uh, but despite that, they would like a relationship, and in return for a good trading relationship, the letter says um, uh, they would allow some of King William's people to live here in peace, um, and they would protect them. That was the guarantee. So you can see the reciprocity that was engaged there. There was a nice little sharp edge in the Maori text because the English translation is um, not accurate at all. It edits out. Um, some key parts which were of interest to Maori because it says in the letter uh, and warns the king, if your people continue to cause us no end of trouble and live off the fat of our land, uh, we will deal with them swiftly and decisively, that's what they say, uh, like we dealt with um, the French in Marion Dufresne on the Bay of Islands when the French were living in for, a long, many, for a long time with the Bay of Islands Maori in peace trading and, and living together, then they made a tragic cultural mistake and there was a fighting and the French were, were killed. And uh, that's referred to in the letter. In other words, they say, so uh, this is not an open open house. Your people must conform to certain forms of behaviour. And if they don't, you don't deal with them, we'll deal with them rather swiftly. And I guess also with the language used in that, it 
it is very much from rangatira to rangatira nira. Very much so. Yes, so no, no, Māori no. here were talking on an equal status right. to and, the English and, king. And that's absolutely right. And that's the tone of the letter because it's, this is not a, uh, a, sup, uh, a group of suppliants, uh, supplicants saying, oh, please, you know, beg, begging for... They're saying, listen, you have something, we have something, let's tr- tr- deal, and we expect you to... Um, to behave and your people to behave. If you're any leader at all, you'll make sure that that is so. At the same time, we'll make sure our people behave. And this is all, um, yes, um, eyeball to eyeball stuff. And, and very frank and very, um, uh, and very uh, I think, very much appreciated by the British in many ways um, uh, because the consequences of the letters were good. There were immediate responses. And so that led to, you see, that letter... Uh, contributed significantly to the British decision to formally appoint their first official, um, a British resident, which was at the lower end of, of, of formal relationships, uh, and that was James Busby. So I guess it's also fair to assume that letter was written in 1831, that nothing really would have changed much four years later when it came to the Declaration of Independence, and then another five years later when it came to the Treaty of Waitangi. Well, there, um, and, and at the level of politics, um, uh, no, I think you'd have to say that from 1831 right through to, uh, say, to 1835, when the declaration was made, and then eventually to the formal treaty, a formal treaty in 1840, much was going on in the Maori world. The North Auckland economy was booming. Uh, trade was at extraordinary levels. Um, and ships, um, uh, many ships from many parts of the world we're now coming into Bay of Islands uh, to buy fresh produce, um, timber, and, 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 other, and, and other commodities that, that Māori were producing. Um, and in return, um, Māori in the, in the north, um, and I might say uh, to a smaller extent, there was a lot of similar trade taking place in the, with Ngātahu and Ngāti Mamoi in, in, in the South Island, and, um, but, a, but a smaller degree. Um, and um, uh, so um, all that, that was tremendous economic activity uh, in terms of trade. But in order to produce the surplus foods and commodities that the, the, the various hapu uh, and uh, kainga were creating, that required, um, I believe, substantial land reform. And that land reform was led by the likes of Hongi Hika, and, and the Māori leadership in the 1820s and 1830s to transform Ngāpuhi land tenure systems uh, because that's the only way that they have the, there would be the increase in production uh, and, and, and produce for them to feed the North Auckland economy, which was the largest Māori economy of its time, and at the same time produce these massive surpluses that they would sell to foreign ships. So in economics... Uh, that impounded on, impacted on the emergent new type, the need for new political systems, in which the Ngāpuhi leaders were, uh, were already discussing things like, uh, from 1820, we know that they began discussing, is a parliament going to be helpful for us for new types of leadership? They were also discussing uh, such things as, maybe we need new laws, that's LAWS. Okay, who makes the laws? So you can see they were already exploring what does a parliament do? What's that do? Should we have one? So in North Auckland, is also discussing, 
should we have a monarchy? They were watching what was happening in Tahiti, keeping very much informed there. They knew what was going on in Hawaii. Uh, and they also, of course, they were busy watching the British monarchy system. Uh, and there was a great fascination with uh, making links with the British uh, monarchy. So, so you, you need to um, you see this as a very, very tumultuous period, really, economically, politically. And then the other thing is that um, there was a lot of Maori deaths going on at the same time, on top of all this, uh, through the introduction of diseases, which Maori um, biologically weren't capable of, um, of um, dealing with. Uh, at, at the time, unknown, un, unknown illnesses that they had, as well as um, uh, substantial fighting. And so you, you've got a very, very busy and very, very active period. And in the midst of this, Māori leaders are trying to engage with both local issues as well as new emergent international ones. And you have Christianity coming out on top of all this. So I'm not sure you can see why I'm, I would be one of those historians saying, well, it's not as simple to say... That Christianity um, is uh, primarily a product of, of a colonial enterprise. There's one we have, as I said earlier, we have evidence that Maori were looking for Christianity and for the, the good things of it, both material and spiritual. Uh, and um, so there's political change taking place, economic change taking place, the land tenure systems are changing in the north, as well as the religious insights are changing. So with all that happening, we then come to the 1835 Declaration of Independence. What was that about? Well, that followed on from um, a piece of advice that um, Busby was um, giving to the North Auckland rangatira, but also to some of the southern rangatira from, say, uh, Napier, uh, Te Hapuku, later on uh, Te Whirofiro, of Waikato, Maniapoto, of Mahuta, and so on, uh, about um, uh, the benefits for Māori enterprise or business, uh, if they were, if Māori were to declare themselves as an independent country, meaning that Māori were in control of this country, meaning also that Māori intended to form something greater than the tribal system that was the basis of, of Māori society at the time. Um, and so Busby was advising them on how this might be done, and uh, at the same time saying that when the rangatira met as a group, they met in their collective capacity. And in that collective capacity, they could then possibly look at ways of forming laws, LAWS, um, uh, that would um, uh, could apply to, to each, all of the tribal areas once agreement had been reached among the rangatira. And that was so you can see the intention there. In other words... Um, there's a lot of mobility of Māori across tribal boundaries in this period, tremendous social mobility going on. And, um, and therefore, uh, whose tikanga do you follow if you end up going to live in another part of the country and you're trading and you're working, going backwards, you know, all these kind of questions. Um, so both of you said, um, um, well, one way of dealing with this is to declare independence say to the world that you're going to form a parliament, a congress, the word they used in English, uh, a runanga in Māori, uh, and, um, and, and that runanga would pass laws on trade, peace and justice. Uh, so that was all the intentional stuff put into the declaration, and they made the announcement. Uh, it came from the north, but it included, uh, from 1835 to 1839, 
the gathering of many, many signatures, which grew up to about 50 signatures. Of mainly, most of the, uh, many of the top leaders uh, covering from the Hawke's Bay across uh, to Waikato and, and, and the north. My own, my own reading is um, that Te Huhu, who was very closely connected in marriage and in friendship terms to Te Whero Whero, uh, was, uh would have been fully informed as to what was going on. Busby himself had travelled to Taupo, and, um, it's must, and it would have been um, uh, inconceivable uh, to imagine that he didn't raise these issues with Tehuhu directly when he went there, because he was a he was a missionary of sorts, missionary of ideas. So while his, the Tehuhu signature is not around, his subsequent behaviour suggests uh, an independence of mind and thought, and consequently, he refused to sign the Treaty of Waitangi. And he had good reason to, because in his mind, he knew what the other rangatira, the Fero Fero, Wakanene, Patuone, Honeheke, and a whole raft of the northern ones were doing in terms of forming this new Maori nation and state. And one of the other key points around the Declaration of Independence was the use of language. Well, the the the, the declaration is 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 in one language document. It's written only in Maori. Uh, Busby uh, purported to. Um, draft and a, a translation. It's actually not a translation. It's really a description of what he says the Maori are saying. So a lot of our history, historians never really have, uh, have done a very little work on the Maori text itself. They've just taken at face value what Busby said the Maori text um, studies, and that's one area in which I did a lot of work, which was worked solely on the Maori text. And in there, there's some uh, lovely Maori political ideas uh, that express notions of sovereignty, ideas that for some reason or other, and one can be have a certain amount of suspicion here, uh, they didn't use terms in the treaty. Um, and what, what are some of those? Well, for instance, uh, in, um, in one of the articles, <clears throat> they refer to um, um, sovereignty, the rangatira, in two ways. They refer to, uh, in Māori, they refer to it as mana itafenua, which refers to the mana of the rangatira that comes up from the ground through into the human people, into the rangatira. That's different to mana otafenua, the mana of the land, and which is a different type of mana. But uh, this is we, the reason we are leaders, the reason we can speak as leaders, is because the mana comes from the land through our feet into us. And that, that's a beautiful expression of a Maori notion of sovereignty. Who, where does your mana come from? And, um, but in the same sentence, they talk about um, the, the sovereignty of, um, uh, of and using terms like rangatiratanga uh, and kawanatanga, words like this. So, uh, so they're now drawing on um, the... Um, missionary terms for sovereignty and these things. And, and then you get kawanatanga, which is a made-up word, and other words like that. But Which means? Uh, governance. Uh, forms of governance and so on and so forth. So, um, uh, which were words that appeared five years later in the Treaty of Waitangi. in the Treaty. Mm. And, and um, uh, some, some of us uh, Māori scholars would, would uh, we reach the conclusion that um, 
Manahitofen was deliberately left out because it's extremely precise in its meaning about uh, who has the mana. And that would make it, if you asserted in the treaty Manahitofenua, then you, you would not be talking session in any way. So knowing that, Manika, then why, why is the Treaty of Waitangi, Titiriti or Waitangi, often held up as a founding document of Aotearoa? <laughs> yes, I, I, um, <clears throat> I couldn't find any evidence uh, in the, in the 1830s, 1840s or 1850s, 1860s that Māori was saying the treaty was the foundation document. This is very much a 20th century notion in my mind. Um, uh, there is some some historians put a twist on these things. Um, Buick wrote his book on the Treaty of Waitangi at the beginning of the say 1905 or 1910 or some period like that, and uh, he talks about in there that the treaty is the um, social compact of of New Zealand. Um, but um, Busby was to say it was the Declaration of Independence was the First social compact. See, so you can see that there's changes in political thinking and and interpreting history. Um, I think to suit the times, really, in terms of Buick, because Buick was of the view that session had taken place. Busby himself wasn't sure uh, that what well, he knew that Maori did not intend to cede sovereignty, but I think he did think that uh, as a consequence of what they did, they, for all intents and purposes, they were going to lose it. Uh, but he, right up to the 1850s, 1860s, Busby was trying to make clear, now this is what I understood Māori to be doing. And that's why we're in conflict now. This is what he was saying in the 1840s, 50s and 60s. You know, um, so, um, so the differences over understanding starts appearing very, very early. Um, and uh, most, most of New Zealand's mainstream historians from Nancy Parker who um, um, play down the significance of the Declaration of Independence. And from their, from their point of view, it's understandable because it's not their history. It's Māori history. Pākehā history formally starts, really, with the, um, the, the session of a treaty from their point of view. And, uh, maybe, and that is where I think we have the nub of the conflicting historical understandings even today. Kia ora, Manuka Hinari no Nati Kuri, Nati Kahu, Te Aupauri, Mete Arua. And I'm Justine Murray, and you can visit our webpage for more details about the show, including today's music and podcast. Go to radioNZ.co.nz forward slash Te Ahika. Anaira, Edu Rerekura, Mete Fakatoki. Kuau te whenua, ko te whenua kuau. I am the land, and the land is me. Next week we're all about the kai. So Justine, what kai Māori do you like? Well, Mariah, I'm partial to the old kina, or um, sea eggs, I think a lot of people call them, and I love... See, oh. that's your tauranga moana side coming through, eh? Because it's so abundant, having kai moana, where, you know, being a bush girl... <laughs> Harore, mushrooms. Harore is mushrooms. Or pickle pickle. Pickle pickle, I love pickle pickle. Pickle pickle is the, um, the frond, the fern frond. Some people think it tastes like peanut butter. <laughs> Hardly. <laughs>
And no, it doesn't taste like chicken either. And um, horse muscles. Horse muscles? Horse. You know how you get a normal muscle in the supermarket, you know, underneath the little showery, sprinkly thing? Horse muscle is about five times the size of one of those normal ones. Is it natural? Um, I'm not too sure. I think they dive for them at the depths of the ocean, but yeah, love horse muscles. Kinga kai kōrero mō wiki he mihi tēnei kia koutou. Me te kaira wiki wiki mihini a Kevin Golding. Kia ora. Hei tērā wiki. Mai te whānau a te ahi kā ki a tātou katoa. Hei kona mai.